Well, I'm glad to see you here this weekend. And if you have your Bible with you, turn over to John chapter 21. John 21. And uh, let me kind of set the stage for what we've been doing. We've been in this series called The Blessed Life. And as we look back now and see what God is doing this weekend, it's going to be, I mean, it's just going to be one fantastic weekend from now till Monday night here at CCV. Do you know what's going on tomorrow night? Anybody? That's right, the vow, the completion of the vow. And for those of you who don't know what that is, I guess, well, it's been about 90 days ago, I challenged our congregation that if there's something in their life that they've just been struggling with, something they just can't quite get over the hump with, maybe it's an illness in their life, maybe it's economic issue, financial issue, maybe it's a relational issue, whatever it is, and you said, man, I really need God to intervene in this. I've been praying. I've had my friends come together. I've been asking their advice, but I really need God's intervention. I ask you to go back and look at the Old Testament Nazarite vow, where when somebody really desperately needed God, that's the only way they could survive this, they would take a Nazarite vow. And it meant three things. Number one, that you'd give up something that is very dear to you. For 90 days, you'd say, okay, I'm not having another coffee for 90 days or chocolate, whatever it is, very close to you. And then you'd change something about your outward appearance. You'd just change the way you cut your hair. Some guys uh, grew a beard. Patrick Gorley back at the tech booth, he just refused to shave his beard for like 90 days. I mean, he was looking like, well, I want to tell you what he was looking like, but Grizzly Adams, something like that. And so, Now, that's funny. A lot of you young people have no idea who Grizzly Adams is, do you? See, that shows you. Thank you. You show your age when you say stuff like that. And then uh, finally, that you would bring an offering. And I... I I wanted to make sure that you didn't think this was a ploy for the church to get somehow more money. So I said, if you bring an offering, don't bring it here. Give it away to somebody in need or something, but don't bring it here if the, as part of your Nazarite vow. And so tomorrow night, that ends. And we're all going to gather into this place. It's going to be packed out. We're doing a live recording with our uh, worship team, and we're completing that vow in our ceremony. It is going to be awesome. Follow that up with what we do on Monday night with our prayer meeting kicking up again, and that's just been going phenomenally. Uh, it's amazing what God has planned for this weekend. We, we thought we were in charge, and then we look on the calendar and think, man, there are some awesome things coming together here. But I want to explain something about the vow to make sure that if you do come tomorrow night, uh, that you understand what's going on. A vow is not something you do as a formula to get God to do what you want him to do. See, if that's how you looked at it, then you've missed the boat. The whole point of the vow is that you recognize there's something in your life that unless God intervenes, there's no way you're going to be successful or productive in whatever it is. What you're asking God to do is to work miraculously in your life to open your eyes to one, either remove it, let's say it's an addiction, one, to remove your thirst for it, or two, to show you why he hasn't. If it's a relational problem, maybe you've been praying that God would come down and restore your marriage. You know it's not good, but you want it to be good. He's either going to do something miraculous, or he's going to open your eyes to what you need to be doing to heal this relational fracture. The whole idea is not to get God to do what you want him to do, but for God to move in a way that would either relieve you of this issue that you're facing or to give you wisdom to open your eyes to see what he's doing in and through everything. Now, because that's what's going to happen tomorrow night, I thought it would be great to end this series by helping you remember the vow you took a long time ago and to ask you how you're doing. Do you remember when you came to Jesus? The first time you made a vow and there's some things you promised him. And while I try to work my way through this, I, do you notice I have a cold, okay? My nose has been like Niagara Falls for three days. I have no idea why, but I don't want that to distract you. That's why I've got these babies right here. So if I have to turn and blow my nose, I'm sorry. But 
don't let that distract you. The, the message is too important, which is probably why I'm going through this. So stay with me because there's a vow that all of us made and I want to remind you of it and I want to ask you how you're doing with that original vow that you made to Jesus. Now to help you see what that is, I don't want to just make some things up. I want to take you through a story in the Word. There's a great story in John 21 and it's where Jesus comes back to restore Peter. The last time Peter saw Jesus, what had happened? He had denied him three times. And now Jesus has told the disciples, verse 1, to wait by the Sea of Tiberias. Now, it's important if you have your Bible to turn to John 21 because I'm not going to pick up the passage on the screen until verse 15. So I'm going to set the stage for you. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. I'll tell you the story. If you do turn there, it'll be fun and interesting just walking with me through the passage. Your eyes will be open to what exactly is happening here. Now, remember, Peter's in a bad way, man. And Jesus has told Peter and the other disciples to wait by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee. It's the only other time, I think, in John 21 that Jesus refers to it or the text as the Sea of Tiberias. So they're supposed to wait in the Sea of Galilee. And guess what happens? The writer John gives us a list of who's there, and it's Peter. And Peter's name is always listed first when the Bible lists the disciples. Why? Because he's the leader. He's looked to be the leader of the disciples. It's kind of scary, isn't it? So Peter is listed, and then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and then Philip and Andrew, just to let you know that the disciples are there, and they're waiting Jesus' instruction. They're supposed to wait there, if you know the story back in Acts, wait there until Jesus comes, and he'll tell you what to do next. Now, guess what happens immediately, I think, in verse 3? What does Peter do? Peter looks at the other disciples, and he says, I'm going to go fishing. Now, the way it's written in the original language, he's not saying, I'm going to go fishing now. He's saying, I'm going to go back to my occupation of fishing. You see what he's doing? Peter is saying this, I've been a really bad disciple. I mean, I'm no good at being a disciple. I often spoke before I thought. I even rebuked Jesus. I mean, I rebuked the Son of God. I denied him three times. I've been terrible at this. I just can't do it. I'm going to go back to what I know I can do well. I'm going to go back to fishing. And because he's the leader, the other disciples looked and said, hey, we're going with you. We're all going to go back to fishing. Now, you think about what Peter just did. He just led the disciples to obey a direct commandment of the Lord Jesus. They're supposed to stay by the Sea of Tiberias and wait until they receive instruction. Peter says, no, I'm not doing this. We're, I'm terrible at this. I mean, who knows what's going on here? I'm going to go back to fishing. So the Bible says they went out, started to fish. Now, the next thing that happens is they catch nothing. Remember last week how we talked about Jesus putting the disciples in positions of what we call deliberately induced frustration, where he'll put them out on the lake or send them somewhere knowing that things aren't going to go well. Well, this time they go out to go fishing in their own accord and Jesus makes sure they don't catch any fish. Why? He's wanting to communicate something to Peter. Hey, I called you to be a fisher of men. You can go back to your old occupation if you want, but you're going to be miserable at it and I'm going to make sure you fail. It's Peter's big fish. Instead of getting swallowed by a fish, he doesn't catch any. Jesus comes and he starts to talk to them, but they don't know who he is yet. And they say to him, Peter, that is, and the disciples, why don't you throw the nets on the right side of the boat? Now, why that makes a difference, I have no idea. The boat doesn't stay in one place. It spins round and round. No matter what side the nets are on, why would it matter? But Jesus says, throw them on the right side. Now, would you like to know the other time in the Bible when that exact situation occurs? At Peter's original calling in Luke 5. They hadn't caught any fish, and Jesus came and said to Peter, why don't you throw the nets on the other side of the boat? And what happened when they did? They caught so many fish, the net started to break. What happens here? First of all, 
Jesus arrives on the scene and asks them after they've been fishing, having caught nothing, Jesus says, have you caught anything? That's so cold, isn't it? He knew they hadn't caught anything. Caught anything, boys? No. Throw it on the right side. They throw it on the right side. The same exact thing that happened in Luke 5 happens now. They catch so many fish that the neck starts to break. Now, John, who's writing this account, he says, and the one Jesus loved told Peter it was the Lord. See what John is doing? John is referred to as the one Jesus loved because of the experience they had at the Lord's Supper when Jesus and the disciple kind of laid on each other's chest. And so now John is milking that for all he can get from it. Hey, I'm the one Jesus loved me. I'm the one. And I'm the one that told Peter, look, I'm the one that recognized him first. It's Jesus. Now the Bible says when Peter saw that it was Jesus, he immediately jumped out of the boat. He had his undergarment on. So you've got the fine linen on, uh, which is purple. And then you'd have the outer garment, which I'm going to show you in a moment. So Peter had taken that off because it was hot, I guess. And he, when he saw Jesus, didn't even bother putting his coat back on. He just jumped in the water. And he was, the Bible says, uh, 200 cubits, which is about 300 feet from the shore. He jumps into the water, gets wet, and runs to the shore. Now, here's what happens if you look at the text. Even though he gets out of the boat and he runs to meet Jesus, when he gets to the shore, he stops. And we read of no encounter between him and Jesus. Do you know why? The Bible says that when Peter got to the shore... There were, a, there were a fire of coals, and Jesus was cooking breakfast on it. Now, how many of you believe that smell triggers memory? Okay? Every time I smell fresh blackberries, I think of my mom. No matter where I am, if I, if I get a whiff of fresh blackberries, jam, blackberry jam, I think of my mom because of all the blackberry jam she forced her sons to, to pick and, and, and to can. And so when I smell that, I think of my mom. Okay, the only other place in the New Testament where you read this phrase, fire of coals, is where? When Peter was warming his hand over the fire of coals and denying his Savior three times. Peter runs to the shore. He wants to be reconciled. He wants to talk to Jesus because there's something between them. And he smells those coals of fires. And the Bible is silent now. It actually says that Peter goes back and drags the boat ashore. So he goes to Jesus, then he goes back away from Jesus, pulls the boat, and they count the fish. Why do they do that? They tell you how many fish they caught because this is a historical account. This is not a legend. This is an historical account. There were eyewitnesses. This is how many fish they caught. And then the Bible says Jesus makes them breakfast. And after everybody's had a little bit of breakfast, Jesus starts to speak. And guess who he directs his conversation toward? Peter. Why? Because this whole account is about restoring Peter. And reminding him of the vow he's taken. And I want to remind you of the vow you've taken. Here's what happens in verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Two things. Number one, the Greek word Jesus uses is akapao. It's the highest, loftiest word for love. It means, do you love me, Peter, unconditionally? He says, do you love me, akapao, more than you do these? And the these, what do they stand for? Well, it could be the fish in the boats. Why are you fishing for fish again? I called you to be a fisher of men. Do you not love me more than these? Or it might mean the disciples. Because remember what Peter told Jesus at one point? Even though all these boys forsake you, I'll never leave you. And then the time came and Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you, agapao, do you love me unconditionally with the highest, loftiest love? 
Do you love me more than all of these? Look at Peter's response. He says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. But when he says, I love you, Lord, he doesn't use Jesus' same word, agapao. He uses phileo. Here's what's happening. Jesus says, do you love me with the highest, loftiest love? Peter knows he can't claim that because if he loved Jesus unconditionally, when Jesus was in his presence, he would not have denied him. And even if Jesus had required the greatest sacrifice, Peter's own life, if he loved Jesus unconditionally, he would have gave it, given it. You with me? So Peter realized he couldn't claim the highest love, so he says, well, Jesus, you know that I phileo. That's friendship love. You know that we are best buddies, Lord. You know we are. And Jesus responds by saying, okay, feed my lambs. Then verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he uses agapao again. He's saying, Peter, I didn't ask you if we were best friends. I ask you, do you love me unconditionally with the highest, loftiest love? And Peter responds by saying, yes, Lord. You know, I love you. But he uses phileo again. Yes, Lord, you know that you and I are best pals. And Jesus says, okay, Peter, tend my sheep. And then the Bible says in verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, do you love me? This time he doesn't use agapao. This time he uses Peter's own word. And he says, Peter, do you even consider me a best friend? And at this, the Bible says Peter was grieved. The Greek word is lupeo. It's the word that Jesus uses when he comes to the tomb of Lazarus. And the Bible says he's deeply moved in spirit. He's deeply grieved at the death of his friend. Peter now is deeply grieved because he knows Jesus is questioning whether or not he even likes him a lot. And Peter responds and he says, Lord, you know all things. That's a statement of omniscience. Peter's saying, Lord, please don't look at the way I've acted. You know all things. You're God in the flesh. Look into my heart and you'll see that I love you more than anything else. And Jesus said, okay, feed my sheep. Now there's something else going on here. Not only is there a play on the Greek words of love, phileo, and agapao, but there's also different words used for sheep. Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And every time it's progressive. At first he says, feed my young sheep. Second time he says, feed my adolescent sheep. And third time he says, feed my old dear sheep. You know what he's saying to Peter? Peter, if you love me, you're going to teach new converts. You're going to teach those who are growing in their faith. And you're even going to teach the leaders of the great thing I've established here, God's kingdom on this earth. And that's exactly what Peter ends up doing. Now here's the question that I have to ask everybody in the room. Do you love Jesus more than anything else? That's the vow you made. It's okay to come to Jesus as we first did, thinking we were gonna get something from him and he could help us get what we wanted. That's how most of us come. Well, maybe there is God, maybe Jesus exists, and maybe he can help me advance in my career. Maybe he can help get me greater finances. Maybe he can help me find the guy, the girl, the job. And that's okay at first. There's, a, there's an immaturity to it. It's okay at first, but you can't stay there, right? We said that a few weeks ago. You can't stay there because, first of all, that would be hypocrisy. How many of you would keep a friend if you knew that friend only liked you for what you could give them, not for who you are? There comes a time when you have to grow out of what can he give me that I want. Jesus is asking Peter, Peter, do you love me for what I can give you or do you love me for me? For Peter, he loved hanging around Jesus. He loved the miracles. Yeah, I'm part of the in crowd, man. I am part of Jesus' disciples. And he was all well and good until it cost him something. And then he denied he even knew him. 
So Jesus comes back and says, Peter, I need to know, and you need to know, Peter, if we're going to go forward, do you love me for what you think I can give you, or do you love me for me? What's your answer? Do you know the answer? Do you love Jesus for Jesus? Remember what I asked you this past Easter? I said, until your heart has been melted by what Jesus has done for you, you can try all you want to love him, but you won't. Until you recognize what he's already done and what he's already given, it'll be tough for you to love Jesus. But when you realize and your eyes are open to the reality that everything you've ever needed, he's already given, and that one day you'll be with him in eternity, and all sicknesses will be healed, and all pain will go away and dissipate, and all the deepest longings and the treasures of your heart will become a reality, until you recognize that, your heart won't be melted, and until your heart is melted by what Jesus already did for you on the cross, you won't love him even if you want to. Jesus says, Peter, did you love me more than anything else? Now, why would Jesus ask him that right out of the starting gate? We'll look at verse 18. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. Now, did you hear that? By what death he would glorify God. Let me show you what's going on here with Jesus and Peter. This is a, an old robe. It's somewhat similar. It's not an exact replica, but it's kind of what they wore in the day. I've been thinking about getting one of these myself. I think I look kind of snazzy in it. And, so, and I'll tell you what, it's comfortable. But they would have the fine linen underneath, which was kind of a light underwear. It was the Calvin Klein of their day, okay? And then they would get up every morning. They would sleep in the fine linen. And then they'd get up in the morning and they would put their robe. And depending on how wealthy you were, it depends on how thick and expensive the robe was. But everybody had a belt. And the belt would go around to kind of rein everything in. And then you would tie the knot. And this was called girding yourself. Okay? It means getting ready for the day. Once you've girded yourself, then you can go wherever you're going to go. Whatever plans you have, you fulfill those plans. Jesus says this to Peter. And remember, the Apostle Paul talks about the belt of truth, girding yourself with the belt of truth, that truth is the thing that reigns everything in. Now, here's what happens. Jesus says, Peter, right now, every morning, you get up, got your underwear, you put your robe on, and you get your belt, and you gird yourself, and you go wherever you want to go and do whatever you want to do. Peter, if you love me, those days are gone. Now, when you get up in the morning, I'm going to order your steps. And you're going to be going where I want you to go and doing the things I want you to do. And one day, Peter, because you've made the decision that I am the Lord and master of your life, there's some other people that are going to come and get you. And they're going to dress you in a robe that is not yours and you're not going to like it. And they're going to gird you and they're going to lead you to go someplace that you don't want to go. That's why I need to know if you love me more than anything else, because Peter, you're going to die. He says you're going to stretch out your hands. And in extra biblical literature, that means crucifixion. He says, Peter, you're going to be crucified. And in your crucifixion, you're going to glorify me by your death. And in AD 65, when Nero blamed the fires of Rome on the Christians, Nero found Peter, brought him, arrested him, crucified him. And Peter requested that he be crucified upside down because he didn't feel like he was worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus. 
Now, I want you to think about what Jesus does with Peter here in that interchange. He's just told Peter, one day you're going to be crucified, you're going to die. And your death, I'm not going to stop because it's going to glorify me. And because of your death, Peter, the church is going to explode with growth because they're going to see your faith commitment even to death. You know what the second question is, don't you? Do you love Jesus more than anything else? And are you willing to sacrifice everything for him? That's the vow you made. He gave you his all. He requires nothing less of you. You know, there's an old story told about a 4th century Asiatic monk who lived up in the mountains and loved the, uh, the, the just peaceful atmosphere and environment, loved to be alone with God, lived most of his life there. This is actual historical uh, character. And Telemachus is his name. And when he's older in life, uh, he senses that God is calling him to leave his place in the mountains and go down into the city, but he doesn't know why. So he doesn't go, but he keeps hearing the voice of the Lord. I want you to go down into the city and I'll show you what you must do. Finally, packs a bag and decides this is from God. So he goes down into the city. As he reaches the city center, there is a large crowd moving into the gladiatorial arena and he gets kind of shoved and pushed in there. And because he's lived in the mountains most of his life, he's never seen the gladiators. And he sees the gladiatorial arena and he sees the blood, the guts, and the gore. And when he does, it's so offensive to him. He hasn't been desensitized by this at all. So it's, it's vulgar to him. So in his chair in the Colosseum, he stands up and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, stop this thing. And everybody kind of looks at him and laughs at him. And he, he says again, in the name of Jesus Christ, forbear. And he gets out of his place and he runs down onto the dirt of the gladiatorial arena. And he says again, in the name of Jesus Christ, stop this horrific thing. And the crowd starts to chant, run him through, run him through. And the soldier takes his spear and runs it through the abdomen of Telemachus, and he goes down onto one knee, and just before he dies, one last time he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, stop this horrible thing. And the historian Lecky tells us that there were many other things brought to bear, but after Telemachus, there was never another fight of the gladiators in the gladiatorial arena. That God had prepared him in the mountains to use him down in the city. And his sole purpose was to stop the blood and the guts and the gore and the murder of the gladiators. What is it in your life that is off limits to God? That if he asked you to give it up, you would not do it. Whatever it is, that is your real savior. That's your real God. And because that one thing is your real God, it controls your emotions. If money is your God, then your depression is going to be based on how much you have in the bank. Your emotions will determine if money is your God. If having a husband or a wife and relationships, if that's your Savior, then if your relationships aren't going well, your emotions will fluctuate. What if God called some of you to be single? all your life, would you still serve him? What if God some of you to be barren, never to have children? Would you still serve him? 
You see what I'm getting at here? Upon what is your faith in Jesus contingent? Where if he didn't give you that, you would walk away. That is your real God, not God. Jesus looks into the eyes of Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me more than anything else? Yes, Lord, I do. Good. That's great to hear because you're going to give your life for me. You're going to give the ultimate for me. Everybody in the room, you have to ask, where are you with Jesus in this? Because there's some, some of you, there's something you don't have that you keep going to God for and he's not delivering. So you automatically interpret that as his abandonment. When in reality, it might be that it is not his plan for you to have this. You say, what kind of a God does that? Well, the same God that told the Apostle Paul, when the Apostle Paul said, please heal me of this infirmity, told him, my grace is sufficient for you and my strength is made perfect in your weakness. What was he saying? God said, I'm not going to give this to you because you think if you have it, it's going to save you. And it won't. I'm your Savior. But as long as you don't have it, you'll keep coming to me. And over time, I'll teach you that it's not what will save you. I'm the one that will meet the deepest needs of your heart. What is it in your life that God is asking you to give up? A long time ago. But it's too precious and too dear to you. And so it stifles the work of God in your life. The vow you made is that you would love Jesus more than anything else to the degree that whatever he asked you to give up for his sake, you would. And if there's something he refused to give you, after a while you would recognize that it is the will of God that you live in the situation that you're in for now. And it is possible to be in the worst place of your life and be in the center of the will of God. That's what the cross shows everybody. There's a third thing. The Bible says, and when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. This is Jesus to Peter. And then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one that betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, do you see how Jesus closes this out with Peter? He says, Peter, do you love me more than anything else? Yes, Lord, I love you. You are my Savior. And if I only have you, that's all I need. Jesus says, perfect, you're going to die for me. Can you imagine that? Jesus sitting across the table. What a, what a horrible recruitment speech, right? Come work for me and you will die. Peter says, okay. And then he starts thinking about what Jesus just said. Jesus then, according to the original language, it's like Jesus does this. Peter, Peter, follow me. And Jesus starts to walk. But Peter doesn't follow. He can't obey Jesus for 10 seconds. And instead of following Jesus, the Bible says he turns around and looks at John. You know, the one who Jesus loved, he's still milking that. He says, the one he, he turned around and said to the one whom Jesus loved, you know the guy who laid on his breast at the Lord's Supper. Man, he's using that all through the book of John. And he says that Peter said to him, what about this guy? You see what he's saying? If I got to die, so does John. not amazing? And what was Jesus' response? That's none of your business. You worry about you, I'll worry about John. And the reason he does that is because God doesn't require everybody to give their lives. But there will be some 
And Jesus says, Peter, you worry about what I require of you. And don't go around saying, well, it's not fair. God requires more of me. God, God allows me to suffer more than my friend. Hey, you worry about you, and God will worry about everybody else. You just follow him wherever he leads. And that's the third question. Will you follow Jesus wherever he leads you? Now, stay with me. In the past, we hear that question, here's what we think. Oh, yeah, I'll go to China. I'll go to Africa. I'll go wherever he leads. That's not what this is about, folks. This is about this. There's a verse in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 that reads this way. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. You want a tweet for the night? There's a good tweet. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. What's he saying? How did Jesus live? Stay with me now. As a suffering servant. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to live like he did. As a suffering servant. That means that if you're suffering or you're giving up of something or you denying yourself something or you're not getting something that you think is rightfully yours, that if it doesn't come your way, you're going to see that as the will of God and he's going to use that somehow for his grand design and purpose. Folks, you say, that is the wackiest theology I've ever heard. Hold it. That is the center of the cross. Jesus suffers, and it's the greatest thing that ever happened to mankind. I'm saying to you that the loss of something, the refusal to gain something, the giving up of something, if it's used for Christ for his purposes, is the greatest privilege. Not only in suffering, but he was a suffering servant. What does that mean? Jesus gave up all his rights associated with being deity. He gave up his rights and died at the hands of the creation. If he can do that, then you and I can give up those things we think we're entitled to or we deserve if it means that it is the will and the plan of God for his purposes to come to fruition in our lives. You had no idea you made that vow when you came to the cross, did you? Most of us didn't. But when you came to the cross, you gave it all. Not only your sin, you gave your life. The Bible's clear. You have been bought with a price. You are not your own. It is not all about you. It is about God and what he wants to do in your life. And the question Jesus asked every single one of us is a simple one. Do you really love me more than anything else? You will if your heart has been touched and melted by the reality that no matter what you lose in this life, it will be replaced to an infinitely greater degree. How many times have you heard me say that over the last six weeks? And if you love me more than anything else, you're willing to sacrifice anything I ask you to sacrifice. And you will follow me wherever I lead you, no matter how tough and difficult the terrain, you'll trust me. I did the funeral this past Wednesday of one of our elders' wives, Nancy Walker. 62 years old. She got cancer. She died within weeks. It was so fast. I visited her one of the first days she was in the hospital. And I thought I would have plenty of time to visit her again. And I came back from my trip a couple of weeks ago. And I heard she's not doing well. I went to the hospital this past Monday. Last Monday. And they told me she, it was a matter of hours. 
she died. She was gone like that, 62 years old, gone. You know what a saint is? A saint is not somebody that's perfect. No such person exists. Let me help you understand who a saint and what a saint is. A saint is a lady who's dying of cancer, who knows she's dying, and she's only contracted this disease a few weeks before, and she knows she's got hours left, and she raises up in her hospital bed to say these words to her children, God is good. That is a saint. God is good. You're dying of cancer, you got days, hours to live, and you raise up, and the one thing you want to say to your family is that God is good. You can only say that in the midst of something like that if you know what's on the other side. And you don't have to have an exhaustive understanding of why this has happened. You just have to love Jesus more than anything else, be willing to sacrifice everything for him, and follow wherever he leads. That's a saint. So where are you? Where are you? Do you love him for the sake of him or for what he can give you? You say, I don't know, Pastor Jeff. Well, here's how you know. You have a, a yearning desire to know him more and more every day. And if that's your desire, you're on the right path. Are you willing to sacrifice everything for him? I don't know, Pastor Jeff. I don't know. There's something he's asked you to give up that you know should not be in your life. And you're trying your best to do so. You're on the right path. Or there's something you don't have in your life and you just think you're entitled to it. You think, I deserve this and God should help me. But he hasn't. But you still love him. And you still trust him. You're on the right path. Will you follow him wherever he leads? I don't know, Pastor Jeff. How do I know? Here's how you know. You're willing to suffer with a peace that passes all understanding. You're willing to use your suffering for the glory of God so that when people see how you respond in those times, the kingdom of God will be expanded and you will be like Nancy and you will raise up and say, in the midst of the most difficult times, God is good. If you can do that, you've kept your vow. You've kept it. And I believe God is well pleased. Father, I thank you for the power of John 21. I thank you that our eyes have been opened to a vow that we made a long time ago and a vow of which Peter was reminded. Father, we thank you for a life so well lived that hears the challenge of Jesus and goes on to live his life and ultimately make the ultimate sacrifice. And because of his sacrifice, we read in history that the church continued to be planted by the word of the apostles and watered plentiful with the blood of the saints. And because of the apostles willing to give so much of their lives, all of their lives to you, that there was a world around them that could not help but to stand up and take notice of people who loved Jesus more than anything else, who were willing to sacrifice everything for him and were willing to follow him wherever he led and to have a peace in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. Father, we are grateful that you reminded us this weekend of our vow. And we pray right now that where we are lacking, we would renew our vow before you and trust you in all things is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.